And I think what's happening right now is we're tempted to swing from one extreme to the other. One extreme being that we can rock solid know something to be true without any need for God or any other thing, purely using our reason or our abilities. And then when we realize that that's a dead end street, we swing to the other side to therefore say, well, that means that nothing's true and there's no way to know anything. And I wonder if the answer's in the middle somewhere of saying there is truth in the world, but as humans, even though we have an amazing gift given to us of being created in the image of God, ultimately, we alone are not able to know what is true if left to our own devices. And therefore, that makes us dependent upon God coming and revealing himself to us. and welcome to Ideology. This is Drew Stedman here today, but without McMurray. He and I were not able to line up a recording time where we both had free, a free schedule this week, so it's just me today. And we are going to take some time today to dive into a topic that we, we hit quite frequently, and it's a word that is common in philosophy, um, and the word is epistemology. And the reason I'm going to, to highlight this is it, it's one of those things that you know, most ordinary people, it's not something you necessarily think about a lot. If you listen to this po- podcast, then you've probably heard us refer to it. But it does have pretty significant ramifications for how we live and how we ultimately understand theology and our life and God and a whole host of other things. And so I do think it's an important concept, at least within the scope of the Ideology Podcast, and wanted to take a little bit of time and, and break it down of what it is, what it means, what are some schools of thought, and why it might impact us today. So in a very simple level, epistemology is a fancy way of saying how we know something. And if you think about it, anytime you're presented with a truth claim or perhaps competing truth claims, you're engaging in epistemology, whether you realize it or not. What's happening is there are certain factors that you are going to use that are going to determine whether or not you find something to be credible or something to be true. Uh, For most of us, that, that happens almost entirely on an intuitive level. But even your intuition is probably shaped by various philosophical schools of thought that you may not even be aware of. But these ideas that have, have been pretty prominent in our society, especially over the last 500 years, but even going further back into classical thought, you, you have these range of thinkers and theologians and philosophers, and they are asking the question, how do we know that something is true? Or how do we evaluate between different competing claims of truth? And the second you get into this, you are starting to engage in epistemology. Now, this is a massive, massive topic, and, you know, it's one of those topics in life where you could study a very small branch of it, and that would be enough to get a PhD, you know, find one thinker, one person who has a proposal about epistemology, and read and research for years to dive into what this means. And so there's no way to ever give a comprehensive overview of it. But what I do hope to do in the next 30 minutes or so is provide an overview of some schools of thought, some trends in the world today, and then, and then we can drill into maybe from the perspective of this podcast and our desire to live out our Christian faith faithfully in our contemporary world, what are some ways that this might affect us and what are some ways of us understanding it? I'd like to start with some historic overview, um, schools of thought related to epistemology. So I'm going to hit a few ways of understanding it that at times overlap with one another and at times compete with one another, and there are four words that end with ism. It's going to be rationalism, empiricism, foundationalism, and coherentism, and I'll explain each one of these. 
Rationalism is the one that, that probably goes back the furthest in modernity, and rationalism is concerned with internal logic and reason as the best way of understanding truth. In other words, maybe said a different way, rationalism tells us that we can know something is true or not directly due to using our reason. And so we are going to look at the internal logic of something, and there are steps that we can take, typically based upon something else that we know to be true, and we can then deduce what is real based on reason alone. Um, Barack Spinoza and others are influential thinkers in this school of thought, but it all comes back to reason. I am a person who is led by my reason alone. Now, typically, somebody involved in rationalism is going to have a low view on emotion, is going to have a low view on what they would consider to be superstition, and these are typically things that reason alone cannot account for, and you know other factors that are kind of down that way of thinking. So within rationalism, you are looking for logical certainties that can build upon other logical certainties and ultimately be used to determine what is or is not true. This is related to, but ultimately conflicts with, a different ism, and that is empiricism. And empiricism is the foundation of modern science. What you're doing with empiricism is you are taking your senses and you are using them to evaluate and ultimately test things in the material world. Um, so this is the realm of science experiments. You know, I'm looking at something, I'm seeing what happens. I'm not even going off of my understanding of reason, but I'm looking at trends in the world that I can test and prove to be true or not to be true. I can run experiments over and over and over again that shows that water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. And over time, I can determine that that is a true statement based upon my sensory experience and what I test to be true. John Locke and others are, are really important thinkers in this school of thought. And I would say that still this one in our world today looms large. Often you'll see this when people appeal to scientific studies as a means of deciding whether or not something is true, and, and they're engaging in empiricism. We have studied this. We got an appropriate sample size. We ran experiments. We accounted for different variables. And we have dictated now that this fact is reliable based upon our sensory experience and the truth claims that come with empiricism. A third school of thought that's tied to the previous two is this concept of foundationalism. And I think we've mentioned this several times on the podcast. Rene Descartes is a famous thinker on this. Um, he had this, he was a, an early modern philosopher who had this crisis where he's actually, as a Christian, he's taking some of these ideas and he's saying, how can I know anything to be true? And ultimately, how can I be certain of God's existence? And so his motivation in developing this concept was actually an apologetic. So he is writing as a Christian thinker. And what he's coming down to is, I can't really prove anything with cold certainty. Even the existence of another person, the external world, I could be living in an illusion, it could be the matrix, I could be hallucinating, I can't be certain of anything. And it goes all the way down to the one point of certainty that he can find is his famous phrase, I think, therefore I am. So whether or not what I experience in the world around me is valid and true and accurate, the fact that I have a thought in the first place dictates there is some form of existence. Therefore, that is a truth I can take to the bank and not question. I think, therefore, I am. Existence is real, even if my perception, I can't be 100% certain that it is accurate. And so then what you do is you start with basic truth claims like that, 
that you believe to be entirely true and certain, and then you build from there. You take one point of truth, and it's the foundation, and then you add layers to it. It's like a house, and ultimately you construct a building. And that's this idea of foundationalism, and you can engage in both reason or empiricism, where you can take you know, science experiments, you can take logic, and, and you can construct this world based upon the foundations of the things that you believe to be certain or most true. And that really is the framework that guided what we talk about a lot, which is modernity. And it's, in some ways, it's an entire system of thought that's dominant in the Western world that's based upon this, that's based largely upon this foundationalism. Another way of looking at it, though, the fourth ism I'm, I'm giving you today is this one called coherentism. And I don't know that we've gotten into this one yet, but coherentism looks at, at, at what we know to be true, not as a foundation of things we're most certain about and then built its way up to the roof. Instead, it's saying, you know, any truth claim could potentially be called into question. So it's not so much about starting with what is most certain. Instead, it's taking all the different truth claims adding it up together and looking for coherency across them. So if I claim A is true and B is true and C is true, uh, what I'm looking to see is do they logically connect to one another? And if so, do I have an overall coherent view of the world? Or do I have competing truth claims that I can't reconcile together? And, and so we're rejecting this idea that there is a foundation that's unquestionable. And instead we're saying we still can know truth, um, but the way that we know truth is seeing how the parts fit together and whether or not they present a coherent picture of the whole. But here's the significance for our purposes today. These four isms that I just gave you, rationalism, empiricism, foundationalism, and coherentism, all four of these are under significant pressure and being called into question today. Not that they are entirely wrong, but I would, I would say that the majority view is that none of these are a reliable guide to truth. In other words, you can't just pick one of these and use it to say that, that you know, build a theory of the universe or a metaphysic or whatever. And, uh, you know, if somebody tried to do that, they would be in the minority of thought today based upon developments that have happened in philosophy and in our culture over the last hundred years or even going back further. So I want to take a little time and get into why is that. There is this concept that you hear people talk about that is the view from nowhere. And this, this concept is widely discredited these days. And the view of from nowhere, what it means is that it is possible to sit outside of culture and society and human thought and analyze the world from a place of pure objectivity. Uh, some of you may be familiar, I remember when I was in college, I would hear these people talk about, you know, this, advocating for this form of universalism. And so they would use this illustration of all the different religions of the world are like blind men, but all of them are trying to make sense of an elephant through touching an elephant. The problem is one person touches the trunk, another person touches the legs, another person touches the tail. So each one of them develops a different theory in their grapple for truth, but all of them are interacting with the same elephant. And, and it's this idea, kind of this platitude of, you know, everyone everywhere has access to truth. We're all in the middle of this struggle towards knowledge and reality and God, and we need to not disparage somebody else's or some other culture and their understanding of truth because we're all trying to make sense of the same thing that we can't quite wrap our minds around. The problem with this illustration is that it, is, is that it assumes there is a person who is able to see, 
And, and so the act of using this illustration is to say, I have knowledge, but all the other religions of the world don't, and I see that all of them are trying to make sense of an elephant, but they can't see that. So it's actually a really arrogant statement if you think about it, because it is making a truth claim. And the truth claim is that there is this universal religion and knowledge of God that we're all struggling for. That is a truth claim that is no more nor less valid than the truth claims of Hinduism, Christianity, or Islam. It's another truth claim that's being made. And so it is a place of, I would consider to be intellectual hubris and blindness to think that I can be purely objective without being influenced by my own sense of culture, my own understanding of the world, and values that have been imparted to me. You run into this a ton. So if you ever get a chance to read uh, 19th century modern science or sociology. It's really interesting. Um, you know, one person I've cited before is the French sociologist Emile Durkheim, who writes a lot about religion as well as other topics. And one of the things that he's famous for is he has this theory of religion. And the way he goes about it is he applies evolutionary theory to the development of religion. So he's looking at how humanity, from his perspective, is evolving into higher forms of religion progressively over time. And so he looks at some groups that he believes um, exercise a form of primitive religion, and then he looks at other highly advanced religions and assumes there's this evolutionary development that takes place. Now, reading it uh, you know, as a 21st century American, it feels entirely racist, <laughs> honestly. I don't know the right word for it, but it's amazing because what he's doing is he's looking at these other societies and he's saying, you guys are primitive, but I represent this European view that is sophisticated, and I want to demonstrate the teleology you know, of, of where religion is headed and how you're going to eventually develop in the same way that I am. And so it's an incredibly arrogant way of looking at the world and assuming that things move from lower to higher and that the person making this assumption typically believes that they represent the higher form of whatever it is that they're talking about. So that's just one example, but you see it all over the place. And, you know, a lot of these works, it doesn't mean there's not, there's not truth to these works, but it does mean there's a bias that affects the way you see the world. And so even as these philosophers are trying to make sense of the world and make their own set of claims, it's done from a place of bias, it's done from a place of cultural understanding and values, it's heavily influenced by their own social location, the society in which they live, their economic status, their geography, their history, their religion, things like that and ultimately completely undercuts the idea that any one person can have this quote-unquote view from nowhere. And, and so this is a pretty significant development that's taken place and can then be applied to almost any branch of knowledge that nobody is able to see outside of their own culture and their own cultural assumptions. Therefore, all these different schools of epistemology are at least called into question because there is no such thing as a view from nowhere or pure objectivity. This whole school of thought, I think, is, is just a helpful way of reading into the different stories or things you come across um, in our modern world, because what's happening is that people are recognizing that a lot of our knowledge is socially constructed, meaning our way of understanding things to be true in the world is heavily influenced by the cultures in which we live. For example, a lot of scientific discovery seems to follow philosophic discovery. Now, that's kind of crazy because you would think that scientific discovery is insulated from whatever's going on in culture and philosophy. You know, you would think like, 
what you see in science is just cold, hard truth, and these are the facts of the universe, and then um, you know, whatever cultures may say or philosophy may say, that has to ultimately grapple with science. But there's trends that a lot of the major scientific discoveries came after earlier developments in cultural and philosophical dis- discoveries. And what ends up happening is we actually revise our science. So in other words, even science itself is not immune to this, that science itself is influenced by what goes on in culture. In other words, there is no objectivity. Viewed negatively, what this is taken to often mean is that certain groups then are able to construct these views of the world that give them an advantage. You know, this is what lies underneath a lot of feminist theory or post-colonial theory is saying that you have, you know, a dominant patriarchal European culture that uses different ideas of epistemology, calls it science, calls it philosophy, calls it sociology, and constructs this view of the world that gives that same group an inherent advantage over and against other groups, and they do it all in the name of science or philosophy or knowledge. And so now what's happening is people are calling into question just about everything. They're saying, how do we know anything is true? How do we know that what you just said is cold, hard truth? in the realm of economics or something else is actually true and is not something that was constructed along the way so that your group is given an advantage over time. I don't think people are thinking that that happens at a malicious level. I don't think they're saying there's some cabal of people manipulating the world to give themselves an advantage, but they're saying that these brilliant philosophers and scientists are not able to see outside their own culture, their own cultural values and prejudices. And so what happens is their developments then are baked in their own cultural values alongside of their scientific discoveries. And so there's still plenty of truth, plenty of things that they come across that are right and and helpful, but you're never able to fully filter out the cultural assumptions that go with it. So let me pause here. Hopefully you're tracking with this overall argument. I'm trying to just give you an idea of the developments that have taken place. I'll interject here at this point, though, a little bit of my own thought. First of all, I, I think these critiques have a lot of validity to them even though in the end, I'm not going to go there with some of the theories that emerge from this. And so to be clear, I believe there is such a thing as absolute truth. And I am very skeptical of relativism and what relativism will do to a society. And also, I I think we know more things that are true than we are able to actually prove using any of these theories. So in other words, just because we can't prove something to be true using one of the methods I've listed above does not mean that that thing is no longer true. It just means that we might have set a standard for truth that we're not actually able to fulfill. And I'll get to that here in a minute. However, despite me saying all of that, I do think that the critique against modernity is a good one. And I've seen a lot of Christians, you know, as they come across some of these philosophies and postmodern philosophies, where it almost seems like they start to defend modernity. So they're, they're almost going back and defending rationalism or empiricism or some of these different things. And personally, I think that's a mistake. I think a lot of postmodern philosophy and some of this that we get into with language or even social constructionism, I think is actually right in the sense of it is deconstructing or it's critiquing or even attacking the truth claims of modernity. And I have a low view of the truth claims of modernity. So I'm, I use these critiques often because I, I do think it provides a helpful, a helpful check against these forms of epistemology or these truth claims that people make. You know, for example, where there is a person who is an atheist and they are trying to use science to disprove God. That would be a really good example of someone using probably empiricism or maybe rationalism as a means of attacking the Christian faith. 
that's a great opportunity for, for us as believers to look at this and say, you know, even though that might seem very logical and no doubt the person making the argument is brilliant, what they're articulating is something that's based upon their own values and biases. And, you know, what Charles Taylor, the philosopher that I've quoted before, he calls them the unthoughts. These are the things that it's not just the data point from science, but it's the philosophy that they've internalized that they don't even necessarily realize they've internalized. It's not the thing they're thinking about. Instead, it's the things they assume to be true, the unthoughts. And those are not something that there is any way of proving, in my opinion. And so, you know, they might have this very carefully constructed argument that is seeking to prove something false about the Christian faith or something else. But in reality, I would argue that there is no view of nowhere. There is no pure scientific objectivity. And no matter how well they do that job, there's no way for them to escape their own cultural blinders and prejudices. And I think in the end, that's why so many of those arguments fail. And to me, aren't very credible. And so I will use so many of these tools, even in my own knowledge and understanding. However, for the sake of our purposes today, I think it's sufficient to say we are in an epistemological crisis during our time. And what I mean by that is what society assumed was an accurate way of proving things to be true that, that maybe existed and, you know, in past centuries, I don't believe we have that anymore. And I think it presents a crisis to us because now we can have multiple different people all advocating for truth, but without any kind of understanding of how we can ever resolve those claims. So one person can have their truth be entirely based upon their experience or upon an experience of an identity group to which they claim to belong or represent. Somebody else can make a claim to truth based on science. Somebody else can make a truth claim based on religion. You know, so you have all these different things, but there's no way of resolving the different truth claims across a society. So it adds to a lot of tension. And I think that's in the background of maybe what we're experiencing in the world around us. And so, you know, where I started this podcast, most people don't think about these type of things. Most people are not aware of the philosophical developments. Most people don't know the big words, but you're still impacted by what's going on. And what's going on is we can no longer agree anymore on a societal level of how we know something to be true. And that adds to a lot of tension. So just in case you don't have a headache yet, let me give you one more concept that's, that is pretty significant that's come up. Um, in the past, I don't know, 60 years or so. And it's this idea of language games. And the key name to known here is uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, um, and he is a German philosopher. And his idea is that ultimately, you know, on the one hand, we can't have any kind of absolute epistemology where we can with certainty know something can be true. But instead, what we can understand is that all of us live within a culture and this idea of language and what language is doing is language is assigning value to something. And so I, you know, I, I look at a tree and I have this word tree that I use. And there's a whole lot of facts in the English language that are associated with trees. It has roots, it has leaves, it has branches. And that's a very simple way of looking at it, but you can expand this um, in, in much more detail. And we end up creating this whole system of thought around the world around us. And, you know, we ultimately develop concepts, the concept of gravity or love or whatever the case may be. And our words, in a sense, are symbols, you know. They, they are taking, it's not just this, this word, but it's the way that our culture has developed our understanding of the world. And ultimately, we have a word, but even more importantly, we have a grammar. We have a way of talking about something. And all of it becomes this giant cultural web. 
And so what, what Wittgenstein is saying is he's saying that our language may not exactly correspond with truth, but there's no way for us to ever know what is true anyway. And so instead, what we can do is learn to master our language. And this is complicated, so you have to kind of hang with it. But, but what he's saying is that we can instead assume the, the rules of the language, so to speak, so whether that's science, you know, we can assume the scientific methodology and the systems of thought that are in science, or religion, we can assume theological concepts, the creedal material or scripture in the Christian faith or things like that. We can never know if they exactly correspond to truth or not, but there's no way to do that anyway, so it's kind of pointless. So instead, let's just accept it as true, and let's learn to master the grammar. In other words, let's take the rules as they are given to us, let's operate within those rules, and maybe within the systems of thought that we have, let's learn how to edit or make the rules better, so to speak. But ultimately, we can never escape the fact that our world is mediated to us through language and culture. So let's embrace it. And this is where you get this idea of language games. Now, this is an appealing option to a lot of people, and even a lot of people in Christian the- theology and philosophy. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. You know, by faith, I'm just going to accept something to be true. And on the one hand, um, I'm, I'm not going to ever prove anything. Even internally, I can't ever know anything to be true for sure. But on the other hand, nothing can ever be disproven. And so me operating within, you know, kind of the Christian language, so to speak, and the Christian grammar, you know, with Orthodox historic Christianity, uh, you know, it, it's no different than somebody else doing that as an agnostic or something, you know, some other form of faith. And so nothing can be disproven. You can't tell me your way is better than my way. And we all have to pick something, so why not? You know, that, that's kind of the idea before it. And it really does destroy atheism. And this probably is the dominant form of thought, at least in the world around us, maybe not in Christian theology, but in the world around us. And it's essentially choosing that every person has to live in a framework. And so, so why not? You know, why not just embrace the Christian framework? All right, so there, there's the overview of these developments in the world around us today. And I, and I recognize these are complicated, but I do think they matter. Um, and, and I hope this overview helps. Let me drill in a little bit into two big problems that I see of the modern debate and maybe offer just a sketch of a solution for some ways forward. First big problem is that if we abandon truth claims, we are in direct conflict with Christian theology and maybe even going further into common sense. You know, if there is such a thing as universal common sense, I think most cultures assume that there is truth. And if we start saying there is no truth, I think we're on dangerous grounds. There's a guy named uh, Michael Polanyi um, who wrote a book called Personal Knowledge, and he is contrasting some of this. You know, he's taking maybe some of these extreme views, and he's agreeing that it is very difficult for us to know with certainty or to see outside of our own culture or language, but where he's disagreeing is this concept that therefore we can't ever know anything. And he's going to say, no, there is correspondence. There is correspondence between our language and actual reality. There is correspondence between our culture and truth. Like, there are some things we can know to be true. Um, You know, humans need water to survive, as an example, and how we might understand that in our culture may be different than another culture, but there is a truth to that claim, even if it is mediated to us through culture. In other words, even though my knowledge is culturally informed and derived, it does not mean that my knowledge is therefore false. It just means that there's not some kind of a-cultural or purely objective way to evaluate it. And, you know, going further, and this is following one of my theological mentors, William Abraham, I I think eventually we can actually start to say that there are truths in the world that are true, even though I can't prove them to be true 
using one of these epistemological tools. I can't prove my mother's love. I can't prove that I need water necessarily, at least, you know, trying to have this rock-solid certainty that's completely unaffected by my culture. I can't approve. You know, there's a whole host of things that you can set up these arbitrary rules for proving something to be true, and I may not be able to meet that standard, but that doesn't make the claim any less true. Or maybe looking at it another way, maybe the problem is not our ability to grasp truth. Maybe the problem is the standards of truth that we have culturally tried to establish, chasing after this idea of pure objective knowledge. And ultimately, this is where I would land. You know, even theologically, I think our problem is that we as people want to take the place of God. We want to know things to be true with rock-solid certainty without having to give any kind of credence to God. I want to be able to just use the things that God has given me, my eyes, my ears, my mind, and whether that's rationalism, whether that's science experiments, whatever the case may be, I want to somehow grasp the universe without having to have God be part of that equation. And I think that right there is where things went off the rails, is it's this quest for pure objective knowledge. And ultimately, I I think we actually live in a really exciting time because we live in a time when even people who do not know God or follow God or acknowledge God are becoming aware of the fact that our quest of finding pure knowledge is ultimately failing. And so what that does is that does raise a crisis because we need to know things are true. We need to have some kind of foundation. I can't live my life questioning everything that I see. I have to be able to live within some kind of truth claim, but this project of modernity has failed And so that presents a real crisis. So therefore, how do I know something can ever be true? And this is where believers, I believe, we we have this incredible advantage because for us, our truth claims do not originate in my own ability to see clearly. And uh, the Christian word for that would be pride. And no Christian says that pride is the way of knowing the world. And if you read the scripture, what you see over and over and over again is when humanity thinks that we know what we're doing, thinks that we are on par with God, thinks that we have the world figured out, those correspond with times of God's judgment and times of sin. In other words, that is not inherently a good thing. Instead, the way that we know things to be true is we humble ourselves before God, and then God acts, God reveals to us. And in the process of God acting and revealing things to us, we are able to then use our God-given abilities to ultimately make sense of what is true. But that truth can never be given to us apart from God. In other words, what I believe is that I can take the self-revelation of God to humanity, and I can stand on that as absolute truth. And the absolute truth is not because I have this superior ability to make sense of the world, but that truth is based upon the fact that God has acted in the world, revealed himself to us. And, you know, if somebody wants to question, you know, how do we know that these things are true? How do we know that Jesus really rose from the dead? How do we know that people still get healed? How do we know that Scripture is historic and reliable? That's where you can get into the realm of epistemology, and we're probably never going to be able to satisfy somebody who wants to use empiricism as an example to prove that. But at the same time, a person who wants to use empiricism can't really prove anything with absolute certainty. And so it's still a useful tool. It can still certainly be used and I think most everybody would acknowledge that. It still gives us some aspect of truth, but it's not going to be able to resolve any kind of ultimate truth claim. And instead, I would just look at it logically, and I'd say, well, that, that makes a lot of sense to me as a Christian, because I don't think there's anything that I can do that can ultimately prove something to be true at the level of God. Instead, I think the only way for me to know something like that is for God to reveal himself to us. So the second problem that I see is the collapse of a moral teleology, and I know that's another big word, 
But, but what I'm referring to that is teleology just means like the, the future of where it's going. You know, so I think most, at least in our American society, most of us live with this idea that we want to be progressing towards an increasingly moral future. And I, that, there's a Christian variation of that. There's a secular variation of that. Even the word progressive indicates that we're progressing to something. But even if you're not a political progressive, I think we all live with this understanding that we want the world to get better, and the world getting better means uh, some form of a moral vision that animates us. And the problem, I, th- I think you can see it right away, is if truth is relative, or if truth is the product of culture, then how can we have any firm ground for morality? And I don't know that we can, because at one level, it's even what we assume to be morally right or wrong is a product of our culture, and there is no way to have objective truth about that. So what right do I have to project anything on anyone? And yes, that applies to people who are historic Christian, and that's where a lot of those of us who are historic Christian, you know, this is where we take flack in a lot of the modern discourse. But I believe it applies equally to somebody who's agnostic or progressive or secular or classic liberal or libertarian or anything else. You know, basically any school of thought that has any form of morality, there's no way to say that that is is representative of truth or that morality is even a good thing or is real or anything other than just a cultural product. So who cares? And I don't know that our society is fully awoken to this reality yet, that it has a very strong moral vision at the same time of not having some form of epistemology or truth claim. But if that clash hasn't happened yet, then it's certainly coming. And I think maybe we see some of it in these competing visions for our society that go on. Um, And that's not just an American thing. I think that happens in other Western contexts, and it's really easy to reduce that to political arguments. I think it's much bigger than that. I think that's just a small symptom of a bigger problem of, at the end of the day, we don't have an agreed-upon way of, of knowing what is true, and maybe even more broadly, of even knowing how to resolve what is true. At the same time, we intuitively desire to have a really strong moral system, and that's just going to lead to tension, and I don't know that the world around us has the tools to resolve that conflict. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays itself out in the coming years. So let me end with this thought. You know, if, if everything I've talked about today makes your head spin and hurt and the big words and all that, um, no worries. It, it's a hard thing to wrap your mind around. And you, it's a kind of sub-discipline. You just got to read a lot. And I still feel very much like a beginner in these topics. However, I have good news for you. And, and it's something I mentioned earlier, and that is this, that ultimately... Just because I cannot use one of the established forms of epistemology to prove something does not mean that something is not true. And I think that's the big mistake that we've made, is we, we've decided that, that we can never really be certain of anything, therefore we have to doubt something, rather than saying maybe the problem is the standards that we've set up to determine what is true. Maybe the standards themselves aren't as reliable. Maybe the scientific method is really good for some things, but maybe the scientific method is not as good when it comes to relationship or theology or even ultimate realities of the universe. You know, maybe, it, maybe it's better of testing things that operate according to what we perceive to be some form of natural law, and it certainly you see its usefulness in the sciences and physics, and praise God for that. But maybe, maybe it's not the answer for everything in our world. And you know, maybe human rationality and reason once again, is a beautiful faculty that God has given us, but maybe it's not enough to prove everything to be true in the way that we would like. Maybe the problem is that the rules we've given for truth are arbitrary, 
And what that opens the door for are things that we know to be true without the ability to prove that those things are true according to somebody else's standards. And, you know, this is where I think of, um, you know, the witness of so many believers around the world. God healed them. God met with them. God transformed them. And can they prove that in a way that's going to satisfy somebody who's doubting them? Maybe not. But does it make it any less true? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. And then when you add up millions, hundreds of millions, even into the billions of those testimony stories, that paints a pretty compelling picture of a God who is actively revealing himself at work in the world. So is epistemology useful? Absolutely. And I, I, I don't think, uh, I hope nobody would take this podcast and say that it doesn't matter or that it's entirely useless. But at the same time, I don't think it's the standard of absolute truth that people have made it to be. And I think what's happening right now is we're tempted to swing from one extreme to the other. One extreme being that we can rock solid know something to be true without any need for God or any other thing, purely using our reason or our abilities. And then when we realize that that's a dead-end street, we swing to the other side to therefore say, well, that means that nothing's true and there's no way to know anything. And I wonder if the answer's in the middle somewhere of saying there is truth in the world, but as humans, even though we have an amazing gift given to us, of being created in the image of God, ultimately, we alone are not able to know what is true if left to our own devices, and therefore that makes us dependent upon God coming and revealing himself to us. And so I think the church has an incredible contribution to make in a time of of crisis, of intellectual crisis in the world around us, of upholding a a vision for the world, of um, how the world is, and a moral imagination of how we're supposed to live and how we can know something to be true. And we have the secret, the secret weapon of the fact that the Holy Spirit is with us and guiding us, leading us into that truth, revealing God to us. It's an amazing time to be alive. So I hope this sketch makes sense and, and helps you even in your own understanding of, of the trends you see in the world around you. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week on Ideology.